Hey, what's up, everybody? So this week, uh, it's one of my favorite conversations I've ever had on this show. Uh, talking with Dr. Nicholas Hardesty from Tall Ships America about his work introducing students to sailing and the history of sailing in the United States and vicarious trauma. This is episode 56 of Untenured Tracks. I'm teaching that today, actually. I'm teaching the the assassination this afternoon. Oh, no kidding. For the, the six students who will show up to the optional Zoom meeting. <laughs> yeah, very cool. Yeah, I love it. I, uh, it's such a great, you know, the story itself is great, and I did have kind of the first time that I presented on it at a conference. Um, I remember coming back and the to the same conference, New England Historical Association, like three or four years later, and my panel moderator was like, oh my God, it's you. Like, I use that, your, your presentation on Cholgosh and the assassination, he's like, I use that every semester now, and I love the more and more that story gets out. It's so, it's so fascinating, and like, I mean, we can talk about this during the episode if, more if you want to, but like, I just, I don't understand why people don't teach that, don't teach that case more. Like, why... <laughs> Why the McKinley assassination has not entered, especially from like the Republican side, why it has yeah. not entered into like the lexicon the same as Lincoln and Kennedy. Like, I, yeah. Just baffling to me. Yeah, and most people don't know about it just in general. I'll bring it up and people will be like, oh, McKinley was assassinated. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, and it's weird because it's not, you know, he wasn't as glamorous a president, I guess, as, you know, Kennedy or Lincoln. But um, but the story, especially with uh, you know James Parker, who I did my master's thesis on, and, and his involvement, and you know I think the one of the main points of my thesis was that everybody's gotten the narrative of the assassination wrong because the one guy who had the most accurate story, they've all you know whitewashed out of the story. So, yeah, I'm not even familiar. Like, I might the name Parker is kind of familiar, but I'm probably conflating him with Bill Parker, who is the chief of police of the LAPD um, and is like responsible for this whole mess um, I guess not as much as McKinley is responsible considering like the imperialism slant and yeah. uh, <laughs> saying I think I think unrestrained American capitalism is actually a good thing <laughs> yeah that will work out yeah James Parker was um, he was a waiter that was there on his day off he's one of the only black people in attendance to go meet McKinley Oh yeah, he was yeah. he was the guy in line ahead of Sholgosh, right? Right behind. Him. Right behind Sholgosh. Sholgosh shoots McKinley. Parker jumps in because, by all accounts, the the Secret Service, the police, the National Guard that were there were all like speechless. Yeah. Parker jumps in. Dex Sholgosh wrestles the gun away and then keeps him because there's like a mob that that is going to kill him and he basically covers him yeah that uh is like a hero for the next week basically it's on every newspaper and then what happened was um 
McKinley died and all of a sudden everybody's stories changed. The Secret Service were like, no, we don't remember this black guy being involved. Um, even though their early statements were like, what a hero, this mountain of a man. Yeah. Uh, so my, my thesis was on kind of deconstructing the stories that were there because they didn't even call uh, Parker to trial to oh. testify. And then all of the eyewitness statements at the trial from the different like security groups are all totally off. And if you kind of break down Parker's, his is the only one that's like all the facts add up and there's no discrepancies. Um, so my thesis was researching him. And then I found that you know, most history books have him like a paragraph, you know, yeah. like most, and it's kind of like he was, you know, proven at trial, you know, that he wasn't, no one's testimony brought him up, but he was a, um, a postal worker, a reconstruction postal worker, born on a cotton plantation into slavery, um, was heavily involved in prohibition politics, and his story is like fascinating. That's so interesting. Um, yeah, he goes on a lecture tour for like three years after, um, after the assassination, he goes on this lecture tour at like AME churches and like black social groups all over the country to talk about you know his experience and the experience of you know being black in the United States at that point. Um, and he even is in December after the uh, shooting, he's invited to the White House to meet Roosevelt. So Roosevelt with Cordelieu, who is. Um, was McKinley's secretary and was right next to McKinley at the shooting, they invited Parker to the White House to meet the president, which is kind of funny, like, if his story was BS, why they would be like, come to the White House, come meet us. Yeah. And they made him a, um, an usher in the Senate for, like, the next Senate term. He worked in the Senate as an usher. He got the job from them. So it's a pretty wild story. He just was completely written out of history. That's crazy. But that's also, like totally consistent with Roosevelt too right because like exactly. the the narrative is like no we we want to deny that a a black a black man a, a freed slave um played this part in it and then Teddy is like you know what I'm just going to do my thing <laughs> yeah so it's like a week after Parker goes to the White House like a week later I think they have Booker T. Washington as a guest and the outcry is so crazy that it starts that unwritten rule that there's no black people allowed to dine in the White House, which stays the rule until FDR, you know, 40 years later, uh, FDR finally breaks that rule. But it's within that week that the White House officially becomes the White House. Like, that's the formal name, not the um, kind of nickname of it. And the, the unofficial ban on black people dining in the White House comes within a week of Parker being there. It's pretty crazy. That's, yeah, that's, yeah, there's so much about it, it's just, it's so, it's so fascinating, like, it's really, I mean, so, I mean, I came across it working on this book about, uh, the history of crime, and, like, major cases in the U.S., and when I started that project, I realized quickly that, like, I had a, a massive blind spot for the early part of the 20th century, yeah. um, and so even I was probably one of those people who was like, yeah, I think McKinley was a president. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sounds like a guy who might have been killed. And then, just, like, has it has turned into this complete, like, well, not complete, but this growing obsession with, like, that period in American crime history. Like, there's just so much. I'm, I'm reading this book called uh, Satan's Circus about uh, an NYPD cop, Charlie Becker, who was like the most corrupt cop in NYPD history, and just hearing about 
like the level of grift that nineteen late late eighteen hundreds early nineteen hundreds NYPD had going on yeah. through Tammany Hall and everything is just unbelievable. And I know yeah. when I when I tell my students about this, they're going to be just like flabbergasted. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> One of my favorite things from that kind of era was when I was at the National Archives, and I'm going through all the um, Secret Service communications and correspondence, and they actually couldn't find the files at first. <laughs> so they're like, "What do you want to do?" And I'm like, "Came down to DC for this." So I basically started pulling anything even that could be remotely related to what I was looking for because I had hours to kill yeah. trying to hunt down these files and I got the um, Secret Service arrest logs that basically were from I think around like 1898 to 1902 oh man it's just folder after folder of people almost all of it is counterfeiting money but it'll have the details of what they were how they were trying to counterfeit the money <laughs> it'll have you know the mugshot which they're almost always in a suit yeah know, all out and uh, every so often you get the old school like prison stripe uniform <laughs> but for the most part even like the kids that they arrest for like trying to pass counterfeit coins or shaving coins or whatever are all um, in these like perfect three piece suits and everything <laughs> it's really wild but it's just so rampant especially around New York um, New York from you know the city up to like Buffalo people were always doing all sorts of weird counterfeit currency things and that's so yeah, I, I I mean I've never done any kind of archival research before, but I really, I really want to, uh, and kind of like learn how to be histo- uh, a historian by myself and just yeah. like this, like this is probably the worst idea anybody's ever had. But yeah, like when I was doing when I was like looking for more sources on the McKinley stuff, I'm sure you've seen it the the film that they made. To recreate the execution of Shogash, yeah, yeah. <laughs> at first I saw it and I was like, they didn't actually film this, right? And then like, I had to like go into the, like, into the footnotes in the Library of Congress to be like, nope, they just filmed like a recreation of it for funsies, and it's so it's so weird and like nothing that would ever happen today. That you know, yeah. I, I imagine the ACLU would would have an absolute oh, like man. brain hemorrhage if. If the courts tried to do this today, um, yeah. much less like <laughs> like the actors' guilds <laughs> and everything yeah. like that, it's just insane. And I hate to use insane as a way to describe stuff, but like watching it, I would like part of me was like I should show this to class, but then maybe I shouldn't show this to class. They passed it off for decades as, as a real film. Really, real film of, yeah. Like you can still find like if you Google video of Shogun's assassination you'll still see sites websites and stuff that list it as as the real the thing footage taken I think by Thomas Edison <laughs> uh, and they like credit the whole thing as being the real the real electrocution of him oh my gosh <laughs> this is just so it's so interesting so yeah I mean I started recording to make sure that the levels were okay Okay. And then to give you like the usual pitch, but we're basically ten minutes into the conversation already. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, thank you for indulging me on that. So, how about instead of just my peppering you with questions about stuff that is only serving me, um, why don't you tell us about something you're working on that you're excited about? All right, uh, I have two kind of major projects that I'm working on right now. Um, I'm going to start with the first one just because it's so relevant right now, yep. which is looking at trauma and looking at 
Um, in particular, vicarious trauma. Um, and so I guess I'll start kind of with the definition, and I'll preface this by saying that my background is as a historian, my you know scholarly background, uh, my graduate degree, it's all in history. So my work in psychology is more of a little bit of a passion of mine, but I don't have training as a psychologist um, beyond some educational psych classes and child psychology classes. So I'm not, you know, the disclaimer is I'm not going to pass myself off as the expert <laughs> here. Um, but so vicarious trauma. So it occurs um, essentially when people undergo negative kind of psychological and cognitive changes mm-hmm. um, from hearing or reading firsthand accounts of, accounts of trauma and kind of over time. Um, and so it happens in a lot of different ways. It affects and presents itself in a lot of ways. Uh, under the mental health umbrella, so in terms of safety, self-esteem, trust, intimacy, spirituality, overall physical and mental health, um, the term vicarious trauma gets lumped in a lot with things like secondary traumatic stress disorder, compassion fatigue, burnout, but it is kind of distinct um, in that it's usually the um, collection of kind of witnessing or reading trauma over time rather than one specific incident. Um, and so what kind of the, the scholarship that exists on it has really dealt with frontline workers um, uh, in terms of doctors, uh, lawyers who are working with people uh, in war crimes, um, uh, hearing their testimony, uh, police, people who you know just day in and day out are witnessing, hearing about this trauma from people. Mm-hmm. Um, Court reporters is one that it's kind of they've done a lot of research on, but I experienced it myself as a historian. That's what kind of sparked it for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was when I was in graduate school, uh, prior to kind of where my real focus is in, in African American history. I was really deep into Balkan history, and that's mm-hmm. where I knew my career was going to lead me. Uh, and with Balkan history, it's a lot of atrocities and a lot of war crimes. And for me, it hit me. I was looking at um, International uh, Criminal Tribunal for the crimes in Yugoslavia from the Yugoslavian Wars of the late 20th century. Um, And I stumbled on these first-hand accounts of um, Serbian atrocities that were kind of inflicted on Kosovar Muslims. And... I'd researched genocide, war crimes, all these things before. You know, I kind of just processed it normally. And this uh, really hit me in such a deep way when I was reading. Um, And it just struck me to my core. And this had never happened before. And I remember kind of feeling compelled to keep reading. And then when it was done, like closing my laptop and just feeling like, wow, something changed in me. Like, that was it. Something changed, and I couldn't really define it. Um, but then I started to experience what a lot of people, um, I would later find out is vicarious trauma, which is this sense of things not being right in the world, mm-hmm. um, affecting a sense of trust with people in general, um, intimacy with people just in general, Um thinking about the fact that this is what humans are capable of. Yeah. And what hope does that give us for anything in the world? 
Um, and this is where vicarious trauma really jabs you is kind of this sense of spirituality and people become cynical or withdrawn or nihilistic or emotionally numb or hopeless um, it really shakes your view of the world and it hit me really really hard um, and I remember I just withdrew from, from school for like six weeks I couldn't connect with any of the work that I was doing, I couldn't bring myself to do it and here I am, a grad, graduate teaching assistant, and trying to like fake it along, like everything is great. And um, it really hit me very, very deeply. Um, and so I remember having, I finally kind of buckled down and wrote the article that I had been researching and presented it in a, in a seminar class. And I remember kind of giving a disclaimer and talking to the class about what I experienced. And the professor who would you know, probably 30, 40 years experience just was like, huh, that's weird and moved on and uh, I later kind of discovered, oh, vicarious trauma is a thing and this sums up exactly what I've experienced um, but I couldn't find anything as to how it related to historians or academics only how it related to people who were like frontline workers Yeah. Um, and so what I did is, is I started researching it I started finding oh wow, like this, I'm not the only person um, that experienced this in terms of historical research. It's actually pretty widespread, particularly among people who do genocide studies. Um, that's one area where it really uh, is pretty present. Um, and, and I remember reading a, a quote and it basically talked about how the violence and like the persistence of genocide how as a genocide researcher you're very isolated in your work um, the obligation that you have to bring out the voices of people who can't speak for themselves uh, all make it really risky terrain psychologically um, and there's this inherent danger there because you're exposing yourself to this knowledge that you generally most people can't make sense of it um, that's it you, these acts that are happening you can't really process it. So as I've looked more and more, I've found a lot, of, uh, a lot of people who've experienced this. It's also seeming to become more prevalent among African-American historians who are researching things like lynching and slavery and connecting into those kind of generational memories and understanding that for them, this is something that is not far removed in history on a different content. This is in their ancestry and their history and in their, their family. Um, so that has been kind of this discovery of, wow, like in academics, particularly in areas of, of social science and history, this is really um, prevalent, but nobody's talking about it. Um, and even presenting at conferences, I'm finding more and more um, some historians who have kind of dabbled in this a little bit to kind of look at it, but for the most part, they're saying, wow, I had a guy come up to me and he was like, you know, I experienced this in college doing research. I had no idea what was wrong with me. And I had no idea why this was impacting me in a way that it wasn't with everybody else. Yeah. And I just couldn't make sense of it. And now here I am, decades later, and you're saying this. And I'm like, oh, wow, that was me and that was my experience. I, I don't know about many other, many other people's experiences. I know my experience, you know, becoming a teacher and and working as an adjunct is that they kind of just the schools I've taught at which I've been proud of like you know my, my alma mater Rhode Island College very proud to teach there 
but they kind of just trust that you can teach and yeah. trust that you can handle this and like great you've got a degree so that means that you sat through a bunch of classes so you must have picked up how to do this <laughs> but there's a lot of other aspects of teaching that you don't consider yeah. when you're jumping into it and that I think is it's one of them is, is how it impacts you and I know that you know I experienced like I said so I experienced this incident with um, in Balkan history but there's another point too where it hit me and I didn't think about it then, but it was doing a, a class on, on Vietnam, and the professor who is the nicest, one of my absolute, probably my favorite professor that I had of all time, just this wonderful, outgoing guy. You could hear his laugh down the hall. Yeah. Um, but he's showing a video at an 8 a.m. class. Shame on me for taking an 8 a.m. <laughs> class in Vietnam. Uh, he's showing a video, and it is um, uh, prisoners of war who are captured uh, and they're being released. They're told, you know, run across that field, run to that tree line, that's where your fellow soldiers are. The guys get 10 steps and they're being shot. Yeah. As they're and they're like, maybe you'll get there, maybe you won't. And I remember seeing this and it's, you know, 8 a.m. murder. Yeah. Is what, this, this is video of, of murder. Yeah. And, you know, the air in the classroom, the atmosphere is just really... You know, no one's really taking anything from this, and I think that you know those experiences as a professor. I, you know, I subscribe to this thing of shock and awe pedagogy is really rarely useful. Um, shock for shock's sake yeah. is an effective teaching model, and I remember doing it myself my first semester and teaching about lynching and handing out these newspaper articles that were graphic depictions of people being, you know, tortured and dismembered and thinking it comes from a place of you need to understand this. Yeah. You need to grasp the severity of it. Um, but it also came with a without a thought as to how it impacted my students. Yep. Uh, without a thought as to how it impacted me reading this stuff. Um, and I think that it's really important to consider that because a lot of professors and teachers in general get burnt out and get, you know, it, it wears you down. Those details, those things, especially you're talking about crime, yeah. victims, it wears you down. And I think a lot of people are experiencing that right now, looking at the fact that you can go online to any news source or turn on the news and see depictions primarily of black men being murdered by yep. police, mm -hmm. of you know protesters at rallies being assaulted, being killed, and it's so regular now, and it's so repeated. And this is a huge danger for vicarious trauma: is this repeated feeling that causes you to kind of lose faith in humanity, yeah. and in yourself, and in the world, and you become withdrawn. And it's it's a dangerous place, especially. I think as educators, because here we are taking on this responsibility, mm -hmm. we want to help shape people. We want to help people understand the way the world works and strive to make it better. And in turn, we're not at our best if we're not taking care of ourselves. Yeah. And we can't help students be at their best if they're walking into traumatic material. I think that the last statistic I read was that you know, over 10% of students walking in the door, freshman college students, meet the diagnostic criteria for PTSD. Yeah. And with vicarious trauma, 
your exposure to previous trauma makes you far more susceptible. Again, it's a cumulative effect. Yep. Um, and so it is, you know, it's kind of a, a pretty savage uh, thing that sneaks up on you. Uh, but I do think there are effective ways to kind of prevent it. And I think it's really good for educators and for students um, to consider that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And so two things come to mind, right? Like, besides besides all of the violence that we're seeing um, in the news and on, on television and just, like, you know, when you log on to Twitter now, you kind of have to, like, mentally steal yourself that like i'm i'm probably gonna see some awful stuff um even even in like a carefully cultivated timeline like you're still gonna see stuff because people i just don't think are thinking about like what they're putting out um but like in addition to that violence like there are we're in the middle of a pandemic right so there's there's seemingly random death (laughs) around that um but then i mean for me, so I turned 40 this, this couple of months ago, a month ago, um, yeah. and the number of men that I have seen in their 40s dying randomly this year, like, I don't, it just stands out so much more to me, right? Kobe Bryant crashes into the side of a mountain. Grant Imahara has a brain aneurysm just, yeah. and just out of nowhere, right? Um, we're 48 hours removed from Chadwick Boseman's um, death. And so, like, all of that I, I know is taking an effect, like, having an effect on me. Um, I had a, a colleague of mine passed away over the summer. Um, he was 49. And so it's just, like, like, that part of it, on top of, like, all of the, like, all of the violence I'm teaching, like, there are days where I'm, like, like, what am I doing with my life? <laughs> why am I, why am I doing this? Like, I would rather be making art and, and making people happy, not going to class every day to, to satisfy, like, this 20-something-year-old bloodlust that some students have. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't think it's healthy. Um, no, and it's, you know, you think that it's when you're that age and you're, you're doing that research like me, you think it doesn't affect you until it suddenly does. Yeah. Like, that's it. You think that, and I think part of it is, you know, for me at least in the experience of the people that I've spoken with, no one prepares you for this. No one tells you, you know, there's this huge debate over trigger warnings. Yeah. And trigger warnings for vicarious trauma aren't super effective because you never know what that threshold is for what will traumatize you. Yeah. But I do think things like talking to your students about this is the type of material we're going to be viewing. This yep. is how long we're going to be viewing it for, mm-hmm. you know. Um, preparing them to some degree, uh, giving mm-hmm. them a warning that this could be something that for some people um, is it intense or could be traumatic. First, it normalizes mm-hmm. the idea that this happens. It prepares you for the idea that, yeah, sometimes people can view stuff or hear stuff mm-hmm. or watch stuff and they'll be traumatized from it. Mm-hmm. Um, it normalizes that, but it also you know, it helps prepare them for getting blindsided. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's really important. And I also think that part of it is reflections. I can say that never in a social science class as an undergrad or grad school was I ever asked, you know, how did that make you feel? Yeah. You just read this depiction of a violent crime or of, you know, a, a war crime or lynching or something to that effect. How did that impact you? How did you feel? How did you mm-hmm. respond to that? What was going through your head? No one ever asks that, and 
asking that, I started doing that a few semesters ago, suddenly gives you a lot of feedback of, you know, okay, maybe students were disinterested in this point, but really, this is something that, wow, they didn't make that connection, and suddenly, you know, addressing, you know, that particular topic leads you to, frankly, being a better instructor when you start to learn what's effective and what's not. Yeah. And and I think for the professor that was showing these videos of these um, murders in Vietnam, I think feedback for him would have been great at the time if he had asked, how does that make you feel? Because it was clear by the air in the room that most of us were not feeling great about it and probably could have read a passage about it and taken away something more effectively than watching a snuff film (laughs) on TV. It just, it's pretty savage. So I think that really preparing people and talking with them and asking how did this make you feel? What did you take from it? Because frankly, someone might tell you, I'm a mess over this. You know, yeah. I would have, if someone had asked me, I probably would have said, I don't feel great. Like, I'm, I'm really <laughs> upset right now. Um, you know, which again then ties into things like ideas of masculinity. And our students going to admit that, like, wow, I'm feeling a little broken right now after watching this. And it's for me, it's all about normalizing all of that stuff. Just like you said, you're talking about hitting 40, and, you know, I'll be there in six months. And I, I feel you, what you're saying about watching all of these people and seeing people around you dying, and you're like, what is going on? Yeah. It affects your own sense of, of safety and happiness in the world, and it, it's just, um, it's really hard. And this is, I think about how I would feel, how I'd feel about something like that, and then thinking, wow, you know, I was so upset over looking at war crimes in Yugoslavia, and I don't share any ethnicity, I don't share any familial bonds with that. It was enough for me that after that semester, I abandoned Balkan studies entirely. Wow. I walked away, I couldn't do it. And, God, so then I think about the student that has, you know, Serbian or Croatian or Kosovar ancestry, and, you know, how that must affect them or how it could affect them. Yeah. um, Oh, yeah. even with that even with that Vietnam video right I mean it's not like the Vietnam generation is ancient history I mean it might I know it it must seem like that to, to undergraduates but it's not you know yeah. they they have relatives they I mean many of them must have living relatives who who may have been over there and now yeah. I'm like I'm sitting in class thinking about what it could have happened to my grandpa or my uncle like that's messed up <laughs> like that's yeah. that's a really bad call by that professor like it's just yeah, and I think, like, taking the stuff into consideration, right? So, yesterday I tweeted something. I, I said, like, what would an anti-enlightenment criminology look like? And I got these responses about, like, oh, it would just be... My favorite one was from a friend of mine who said it would be a return to demonology, which was... <laughs> Sign me up for that. But, like, yeah. I think it would just be this. Like, this is an anti-enlightenment kind of conversation about the work where we're not, like, well you know, these things happen, and so they should be, they should have this cold, calculating, rational approach to it. Like, we're talking about considering students' feelings and, like, emotional reactions, which is not an enlightenment uh, uh, philosophy in in the least. (laughs) Right? Like, this stuff is really important to to consider, and I think, I mean, I really think that's, at least my discipline is, is is trending towards more of these kind of anti-enlightenment ideals without without even realizing it, right? Like, yeah. 
yeah. criminology has had a major crisis with um, quantitative research being faked, uh, <laughs> right? And yeah. um, by like top journals or people publishing on top journals, and the journals' reaction to that being kind of like, so what? <laughs> like yeah. it's a, it's a name guy. Like like we're not going to pull these papers. Um, and so, like, like, I think that's why, like, having these conversations is super important. Um, yeah. So you said you had two big projects to work on. What was that you were excited about? I mean, working on what was what was the other one? Yeah. So there's the vicarious trauma work, uh, and then the other really taps into a few different areas for me, um, from my kind of personal history. So I'm working on uh, African American maritime history, uh-huh. and. Essentially, uh, so I kind of shifted away from Balkan studies, as I mentioned before. I'd always been really passionate about African-American history. Then I stumbled on my thesis, really, like, immersed me in it. Um, So African-American history was a passion, but my family has a a background in sailing. Mm -hmm. And so I live in in Newport, Rhode Island. It's kind of considered one of the sailing capitals of the world, right on the water. Um, And in particular... The background was in tall ships, which are traditionally rigged sailing ships um, that are used now primarily for educational purposes. Uh, And so uh, the American Sail Training Association was founded in 1973, and it was founded to really teach and support education at sea on these vessels, uh, founded amongst others, but actually by my grandfather, um, so there was this family history in that, and then he, uh, my family eventually kind of withdrew from that. Um, but I reconnected recently. They were looking for a program coordinator, passionate about programming for teens and, and education, uh, really experiential education. Mm-hmm. So I joined up with them, uh, and what we're doing is working on African American history, maritime history programs to be taught on board tall ships, using them as learning environments, using them as a platform where you can physically put students on these vessels. Um, and it's it's interesting because the, the tall ships world, it's not a growth industry. Um, these are, you know, <laughs> primarily wooden vessels that are, you know, going to deteriorate over time. Yeah. It's not a big money industry. It's not one where, you know... If you're a captain on a tall ship, you're doing it out of love. You're doing it out of love for the ships, for the history, for um, the youth, the teens primarily that that sail and train on these vessels. Um, And it teaches you, you know, when you ask someone, what did you learn when they've been on a ship for a week? It's pretty rare that they say, I learned how to sail. You learn about, you know, leadership. You learn about self-esteem, self-efficacy. Uh, teamwork there's a lot more your place in the world um, I think that nothing makes you feel as small as when you're on a ship and suddenly land is out of sight <laughs> realize like oh wow uh, this is this is how big I am it's pretty yeah. for the vessels that might go across the Atlantic and you're 15 days into a voyage and about as far away from land as you're ever going to be yeah um, and so so there's this great industry of people that are really, really passionate, that could turn around and go to another area of the maritime workforce and make considerably more money, yeah. but the passion and the love for it is is what keeps them there. So I'm really drawn to this industry, but these vessels that they sail are 
typically replicas of ships that are really intertwined with uh, African-American history, Mm -hmm. starting from vessels that served as ships that carried African hostages to the Americas for enslavement. Um, That's kind of their first role in connecting with that history is a lot of these ships are replicas, some direct replicas of ships that carried enslaved people, um, and some are, you know, ships that are kind of reflections of that area. And so a lot of them don't really address, maybe with the exception of Amistad, for obvious reasons, it's pretty well known as a a ship that had a rebellion on it. A lot of them don't tackle their history with slavery because they really don't know how to. Um, We've seen it with plantations who try to, you know, this is the beautiful age of the South. And, you know, a lot of the ships really haven't had the resources and the, the means to kind of figure out where do we fit in all this and where do we fit in this discussion? Um, and so we're developing programs right now to teach African-American history that draw on that and acknowledge this history of enslavement and how these ships were used, but also really dig into some lesser-known stuff. Um, a lot of these vessels of this type were also used to police the slave trade, um, mm-hmm. either in the British Navy's West African Naval Squad or the American Navy's Africa Squadron, these ships actively went out and policed from the coast of West Africa to the Caribbean and Brazil, policed and cracked down on slave ships carrying uh, enslaved people. Uh, The British were pretty successful, the Americans less successful. Um, But a lot of people don't know, like you can go to Inner Harbor in Baltimore and go see the USS Constellation and the Constellation is a ship that captured, I believe, three slave vessels, the last one um, freeing hundreds of enslaved Africans. Um, these vessels are out there, so it's a really cool part of history. Some of the ships that were carrying enslaved people were then converted into naval vessels and immediately turned around and brought into service with these Africa squadrons to police the slave trade. Huh. Um, so there's this really cool history that connects with that. That's kind of the first part of what I want to teach um, and what the programs that we're developing. So I work for, kind of to jump back a second, yeah. Tall Ships America, mm-hmm. uh, which was the American Sail Training Association. Now it's called Tall Ships America. And we're a membership organization that represents roughly like 85 to 90% of tall ships in the United States. And so there are members and we work to support them with educational programs, scholarship programs to get people actually out on these vessels, um, an annual conference. Any way that we can support our vessels and our members, we try to do that. Um, And we're really working on programming to do that right now, hence these initiatives in African-American history. Um, And so the other aspect I really want to dig into is that in the northern colonies, um, in what's now the United States, uh, slavery looked very different than in the South. Uh, yeah. It wasn't plantation-style slavery in Rhode Island. We had some plantations that operated from like 1700 to right around the time of the American Revolution, but most of the households, like slave-owning households, were small. Um, one to three uh, enslaved people living there, and it was a lot of maritime trade work, working, um, making rope, uh, sails, shipwrights, but it was all really deeply, deeply connected with the maritime industry. So we have this legacy in the North that we tend to look over uh, as far as enslavement goes. 
and really be like, you know, hey, it wasn't plantation slavery, but it was, you know, its own brand of slavery that was deeply connected, um, you know, with the cotton coming from the South. Uh, and then in the, the Atlantic, the triangle slave trade, we had, I think around the time of the American Revolution, over 100 uh, rum distilleries in Rhode Island, which is a really, really small state. You can pretty much drive point to point in an hour. Um, all of these things built on the labor of the enslaved. Um, so we're looking at teaching that maritime history and also that these vessels, these tall ships were used as escape routes for enslaved from the south. They could come north, find you know, find work on a ship. A lot of the vessels weren't super discriminating. If you were able-bodied and you were willing to go out there and work, they you know wouldn't dig too deep into your past <laughs> to find out if you had you know fled bondage from a, a plantation. Um, and it became options for financial freedom and independence. Uh, and it, it's not really well known, but the whaling industry in New England, um, near Bedford, and Nantucket uh, employed thousands of African Americans in the early 1800s. Um, they also weren't free from things like debt peonage that we saw in, in the Reconstruction South. Um, you know, a lot of the ships, the means to production, were owned by white men who could set their rates for what the ship cost, what they were paying for fish, for example, what the rope, the net, what it all cost, they all had control of could drive this up and do these forms of pseudo-slavery as well to ensure that African Americans could um, rise up. So all of these things that we know of the South, of debt peonage, of slavery, um, of escape from slavery, all really connect to our maritime heritage. Uh, and I really think that these ships are the perfect example to be able to bring students on board and really convey that in a way that you can see and touch the history there. Uh, in a way that you just can't in a classroom. Yeah. So I'm curious, how do you uh, sort of kind of merge the the ideas that we've been talking about today together? Um, how do you reckon with the possibility of there being vicarious trauma going through some of this maritime history experience, especially with people being on these ships that um, may have once been, or at least are replicas of um, slave ships? That's a, a really great question and something that's been on my mind a lot because there's a huge uh, kind of topic in the tall ships community right now which revolves around diversity and inclusion and that sailing in general has typically been seen and has been a um, you know a wealthy white person's world yeah and really trying to work to make it more representative of what our you know our nation's demographics look like yeah um and so, especially as we start to bring people on board that will have complicated histories with ships, yeah. um, it's really about preparing people for what they're looking at, being trauma-informed, um, understanding that if I bring you on board a vessel and we're going to talk about um, seizing African hostages to bring over here for enslavement, we're going to be looking at a ship that could be typical of what we'd see as, you know, as a slave ship. It's really important, I think, to prepare these students for what they're going to see. You're going to see a vessel, and you'll be able to draw mental imagery of what it looked like to have enslaved people packed into this ship. Yeah. Uh, when we talk about that, you know, and it, an important part, I think, with vicarious trauma in terms of history is not running from history. Yeah. But really trying to make it effective. Um, 
I don't think that we should withdraw information because it could potentially harm. I think we need to really consider a thoughtful approach. So part of this is saying that we're going to talk about the fact that people died on the journey from Africa to the Americas. Many, 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 you know, millions of people did not survive this journey and were simply, you know, dumped overboard. And we need to find a way to convey that to people that you're going to be on this vessel and that's going to be in your head. And so I think being trauma-informed, making sure that instructors are aware of vicarious trauma, of how this could impact um, impact their students is really important. Mm -hmm. I think that asking people and checking in with people on how they're feeling with the material that they're viewing is really important. Mm -hmm. um, informing them about the severity and also adjusting your severity. What I teach to elementary school students will be drastically different than what high school students or college students get, and it, being really aware of that. And I yeah. think that, you know, I learned that lesson really harshly, but I was watching um, this tour program that I used to work with, and there was um, a woman who did these tours, and she would describe torture of people in colonial Rhode Island and tongues being ripped out and executions, and she was conveying this to, like, first graders, and saying, okay, like that's not. Yeah. Stick to the, you know, your high school or college students that want that, you know, want to hear that nitty gritty of it. First graders don't need to know that. Like they yeah. don't need to know about branding somebody's tongue. That's horrible. And so I think that understanding your audience, uh, for me as an educator, it's always this constant reminder that first off, I don't know everything. Second, I have no idea what my students have been through. Yeah. I don't know what their histories are. I don't know what their pasts are. Um, there's no way to know. And by acknowledging that, I can then take that into my work and say, I need to be really considerate of the fact that there could be someone here who had an experience. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I had a student in one of my college classes whose family came over on a boat, a makeshift boat from Cuba, um, so depictions of traveling from one place, essentially a forced migration for them, uh, there was no option to stay. Mm -hmm. uh, I could be talking about this, having no idea that my students have personally experienced, you know, being and seeing in a dangerous place where people are dying. Yeah. And so really considering that, um, also having aftercare kind of, of thoughts, um, I've worked on a few different pamphlets to be able to give to teachers um, once the programs are over to say, hey, if you have students that are, um, you know, you're concerned about or express some concern on their part, there's resources out there. There are places to go, people to talk to, things. And part of vicarious trauma is that, you know, talking about it is great, but you can't always talk about it. Personally, I've never spoken about the things that I read from those uh, war crime uh, tes testimonies, I've never discussed that with anyone. It's mm -hmm. hard to give that to life, the actual you know, tangible things that I read. But um, it affects that sense of spirituality. Yeah. So I think that even a walk, if students come and they come on one of these vessels, uh, just the walk back to school giving them a time to be out in the air. Um, yep. Those things kind of affect that sense of spirituality, the self-care. Um, so talking about it with the teachers coming on board, I think first normalizes the idea of vicarious trauma, mm -hmm. and then also prepares them for things they might experience with their students. And then understanding that 
this isn't something that I'm certainly qualified to address. I'm not a mental health care professional uh, as much as we kind of have to be as teachers and professors. uh, We're not. And it's really important to know that there's resources and things that people can look at. Even sending something home to a family to say, hey, this is the experiences, this is what the students went through. Some may be feeling after effects of this. Some may be wanting to dig into it more and be really motivated to look at change. Others might be, you know, impacted by this. Um, There's always that possibility. And for me, I think in what I try to convey is that it doesn't take away anything from me or my lesson or my instruction to prepare someone for what they're looking at, to ask them how they felt about it, and to let them know going forward, if this has impacted you in a particular way, there's people that you can talk to, there's things that you can do um, to to be out there, a lot of them really relating around Mm -hmm. self-care. And so I think that with educational programs, when you're dealing with complicated stuff, traumatic stuff, there really are those options, and it doesn't take much to alter your style of teaching no. to keep that in mind. You're not giving anything away. You know, you're not giving away a part of yourself or uh, ruining your lesson by just saying, "Hey, this can be really tough, and I want to make sure that you're good because it's hard enough being, a, you know, a college student." Yeah, I, you know, <laughs> I kind of laugh about that because there's this perception that it's it's easy, and like, I remember being a grad student working and having you know, custody of my kid and going through a divorce and all of these things that kind of pile up, it's really hard being a college student. Why not take a couple of small steps that can maybe make that a little easier and help reduce trauma or at least let them know this is how you can deal with it. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, so it's really connected to Circle Back, (laughs) uh, really connected to African American history. And um, what we want to really see is these programs be spread out across our tall ship's fleet, which is nationwide, Great Lakes, the West Coast, over Mexico, we have these great vessels that can do these awesome programs, partnering with schools, partnering with colleges and universities. Mm-hmm. Um, they make, they're the perfect like learning platforms to be able to go out there and tangibly um, uh, experience this. And it's really important to me that we work and get them out there and also, you know, have people in programs that are responsible um, for your care, mental and physical, when you're on the vessel. Because a lot of these vessels do a fantastic job. I mean, all of them really do a fantastic job of physical safety. Um, Most of them do a job with your kind of emotional and mental safety, too. But once we start getting into tricky areas where there's not a lot of uh, public awareness about it, how can you know that this material can be traumatic if you don't even know about vicarious trauma? Yeah. Um, so we're really going to be working with our vessels to make sure that that is um, something that's kind of at the forefront when we're dealing with these um, really difficult histories. Yeah. It's interesting, too, because you'd said that, I mean, just by the nature of, like, this pastime, I guess, uh, it, it's probably wealthier people who are going to be more drawn to it, right? Like, there's there's a social class component. And so, like, as we're talking about... Um, maybe black students participating in the programs being being kind of thrust face-to-face with this this part of their own history. It's also an opportunity for wealthier kids to, to have a chance to, like, confront <laughs> um, yeah. some stuff. And then, and then having to deal with, like, because we know about white fragility, right, and that white people yeah. um, 
we fall to pieces at the first like like slightest indication that we may have done something wrong in the past it, it, <laughs> it gets us all upset um yeah and i say that because like i a couple of years ago i was working on my family tree and like doing a lot of genealogical research and i learned that on my mom's side um you can trace you can trace one line back to the 1630s here. He actually might be on the city charter for Newport. <laughs> oh, yeah? Yeah. He, he came over. So there, there are competing versions of his story. Um, and so I learned about how, how competitive people are to be able to claim Mayflower, Mayflower heritage. And oh, like yeah. how a lot of that is actually kind of bull. Um, his is one that I'm, I'm 99% sure is bull. So somehow people have traced him there, but I think he came over on like <laughs> the ship trailing the Mayflower, basically. Yeah, That's um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, he came over as an uh, he was an indentured servant um, who got his contract sold to like a a preacher, who oh. then I think she died, and he ended up moving to Rhode Island oh. and settling. And like being on the like the first thirty people, it might have been Newport, um, and then he just kind of bummed around there. Uh, the woman he ended up marrying, uh, she she came into um, some land because she worked as like a as like a barmaid basically, and there was uh-huh. a guy who was really drunk in the bar who wanted more wine, and she traded him wine for his land. <laughs> and, well- and it held up in court, and the judge was like, like the guy when he sobered up, he was furious and was like, "This can't, this is not legal." And the judge was like, "You signed off on it, like this is your own fault." <laughs> and so, she was now worth a lot because she had this land. He married her; they got married, um, and then like their progeny spread, including to northeastern Pennsylvania, where I'm at now. <laughs> Ironically, uh, so like my se- like however many times removed great uncle wanted to prove that this part of Pennsylvania could be colonized. Um, he was killed during the Revolutionary War in the Battle of Wyoming. There's a national park here named for his granddaughter who was kidnapped by indigenous peoples living here because they were so furious at this at my family. And so yeah. on the first day of class last week, I'm teaching race, class, gender, and crime. And I was like, so let's, let's talk about, like... <laughs> We are we are teaching this class on stolen land, and this is especially important coming from me <laughs> as yeah. the descendant of this this family, um, and the students just being kind of like, and my and like my own. I've known about this for two years now, and just having to kind of reconcile like that part of my family background um, is like it's difficult, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and and I haven't been put face to face. He has a. Their, their family house is still up in Scranton. Um, it's been uh, converted into uh, like a, a place where people have like like wedding receptions and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> but it's still up. Um, and I haven't been, I haven't worked up the courage to go yet because like seeing it tangible is gonna like really mess <laughs> really mess me up, <laughs> yeah. you know. And so I can imagine being like 18 years old and being on this ship from a family of privilege. Um, when I'm hearing all this stuff in the news about white privilege and white supremacy and people accusing me of, or my family of, benefiting from stuff and, and, and kind of having all those go-to reactions, right? Where, like, nobody in my family owned slaves. You know, they all died 200 years ago. Yeah. And then being face-to-face with this, 
it's got to be a trip. <laughs> First, yeah. I would hope. I would hope so. At least, I would hope yeah. it would. I would hope it would cause some soul searching among among some of the white students going through this. Yeah, and it's you know Newport in particular. Uh, I mean, Rhode Island was you know really at the forefront forefront of the tr- the slave trade. Um, mm-hmm. Our history. It's not taught very much in Rhode Island. Uh, we're actually we partnered with a, a historian named Keith Stokes, who is pretty much the authority on Newport and on kind of African heritage in Newport. Um, and he really, uh, you know, we've been talking a lot about this idea that we don't really learn this stuff about Newport and about Rhode Island in general. Our history is super complex. I think about there was a park next to a church that I used to always play in. Uh, when I was little, they have this great plaque about the history of the church. They don't include the, flood, the fact that it was a site of a huge auction site for slaves, uh, for enslaved people. They were being, you know, people were being bought and sold right here. And, you know, there's always this thing again of like, do we put these memorials there? Uh, and, and this guy, Keith, has been really great at helping and really promoting and being at the forefront of getting these memorials put up in our area. Um, but there's always that pushback, and you hope that you enlighten people to say, wow. For the most part, I think that that is my experience in Rhode Island uh, as we start to teach you know, white Rhode Islanders about the history of this colony and the state. I really have them say, wow, I have no idea, and add some understanding to how, you know, first this was built, and this country was built, uh, you know, through through the labor of enslaved people. Yeah, um, and it's it, it's it's interesting seeing people contend with that. Um, some people do a great job with it and really step out there and acknowledge, oh wow, this is how we benefited from enslavement. Um, others not so much. Uh, <laughs> others, you know, really want to, uh, you know, it's the the water under the bridge argument. Uh, which, you know, for me as a student and historian of African-American history, just like, oh, it's so enraging. Yeah. Uh, we hear this thing of like, you know, it's, it's just, it, it's over and it was, you know, hundreds of years ago. Um, but, uh, but that, I think, you know, teaching African-American history, African-American maritime history on board tall ships is a really great opportunity um, to show that, you know how it connects with present day, and these vessels are still out there, um, and you can still. I mean, you're in Pennsylvania. Um, you can go to Erie, and you can go to Niagara, which was one of the, the key ships in the War of 1812, the Battle of Lake Erie, um, where there were, you know, it's debated. Uh, certainly, freed people who were enslaved from Rhode Island served on the ships there, Oliver under Oliver Hazard Perry. Um, and you know you can go out in these vessels where replicas of vessels, but on the waters where these experiences happened, uh, these events happen, and really connect with history in that way. It's a it's a really cool thing and a really way to acknowledge how it impacts you in present day when you're on these historical sites, when you're on these vessels, and you're looking out on the water um, where these people labored, where mm-hmm. people you know who were people of color. Um, worked, some free, some not free, it's a pretty cool opportunity that we still have these vessels in existence, and again, it's not a growth industry, 
uh, as much as I would love to say it, they're not going to be around forever. Yeah. Uh, the numbers will slowly drop, even though new vessels are being built in the manner in which they were, and replicas, um, you know, it'll drop over time. Uh, we'll lose them, you know, here and there, and, you know, whether it's time or the elements or a storm, whatever it is. So I think it's really important that we get mm-hmm. people out there connecting. People who wouldn't normally be able to go on these vessels wouldn't normally it wouldn't even be on their radar yeah uh, I think it's really important to allow them to connect yeah yeah I know I so I grew up outside of Detroit and I've been scheming for ways to do like an alternative spring break to make my students go back there because I, I have some who who can't find unfortunately just don't know where Detroit is right and we're, we're eight yeah. hours away and so if there's anything in Lake Erie <laughs> I would yeah. like that that Clearly, is something that I would I would have to do when I'm able to to bring them bring them there. Even just when we when my family goes back ourselves, um, just to check out. Um, because, like, admittedly, it's part of part of Michigan's history that I'm not I have like zero familiarity with. Yeah, and it's we're we're really connected out in the Great Lakes um, because we have a uh, we do a series of Tall Ships of America. It's called our Tall Ships Challenges, and it's a series of races they do where they'll go port to port in our region. We rotate um, kind of around the country. Uh, we did the Great Lakes. Well, this year we had to cancel them because of COVID. Uh, so last year was the Great Lakes. We'll be there again, I'm assuming. Kill me for not knowing this. Um, <laughs> probably the year after next. But they'll hit you know ports throughout, right all through the Great Lakes. We'll have a number of vessels there. Um, and so it's really a cool opportunity to get out there and see these ships, connect with them, be on board. Um, they are really just, we've got such a great group of people that man these ships. Mm-hmm. And again, it's always a labor of love for them. Yeah. You know, particularly with wooden boats, um, you're always working to keep them from falling <laughs> apart, essentially, because, you know, wood isn't, you know, built to last. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, we're, we're very active in Great Lakes. We have some of our, right off the top of my head, um, some of our, our kind of favorite vessels that do great programming. Um, Dennis Sullivan and uh, Niagara are right, right in the Great Lakes. And they just do, um, there's a really healthy community out there, great vessels. And if anyone uh, is really interested in our website, tallshipsamerica.org, we have a ship directory you can look at it by geography on a map and click, you know, the ports where the ships are, um, or just cruising pictures of the vessels yeah. and looking on that. But uh, particularly in the Great Lakes, we've got a number of vessels out there that are just fantastic, really great educational programs. Oh, I'm, I'm definitely going to check this out uh, after my classes today. Um, hey, I've taken up enough of your time. Thank you so much for coming Thank on. Thank you for having me on. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, I really do. Hey, Andy Wilzak again. So I hope you enjoyed this week's show as much as we enjoyed putting it together. If you did, we would really appreciate it if you left us positive reviews, five-star ratings on iTunes and all the other podcast places that you can do this stuff. And more importantly, this show thrives on word of mouth. So we are doing this completely through social media. All of the guests that we've had are people that I found on Twitter. (laughs) So 
If you are untenured and you are in any kind of academic discipline or you have an advanced degree and are working out in the field and you want an opportunity to come on the show and hype your stuff, please reach out. You can follow us on Twitter at Untenured Tracks or me at Hey Dr. Will. That's H-E-Y-D-R-W-I-L. Please send me a message on one or both accounts and we will book you on the show. It doesn't matter what your discipline is. I know that a lot of our previous interviews have been sociology and criminology based because that's my background, but I am open to anybody. So again, please rate and review the show. Tell your friends, tell your people about this and I'll see you next week. Bye.